five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hello, space enthusiasts. My guest this week is the founder and CEO of another prominent new space company. It's Payam Banazadeh from Capella Space. Capella is a remote sensing company that is using what is called Synthetic Aperture Radar, or SAR, technology. Don't worry, we'll explain what SAR is during the episode. The important summary is, it allows you to see at night and through cloud cover. You can imagine that has interesting and important use cases. Payam will take us through those use cases and many other things about Capella. Enjoy. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. And just some final things before we start the episode about ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. If you want us help, expand our work, you can do so and support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. And we'll also put that link in the episode notes. And lastly, you can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Hey, welcome back, everybody. It's finally time for another episode of the space business podcast. I was traveling quite a bit the last few weeks, hence there was a couple of weeks without an episode. But here we are today, and I'm super excited to have Payam Banazade, the CEO and founder from Capella Space with me. It's somebody I've been wanting to have on the podcast for a while, so really happy he's here. Welcome, Payam. Thanks, Rafael. I'm super excited to be here. I haven't, ha- I haven't done one of these podcasts in a very, very long time, so super excited to do one, and I'm, I'm excited to chat with you. But this is fantastic, because if you haven't done one in a while, it gives you a chance to update everybody about all of the exciting things which are going on, talk to, about Capella to our you know, thousands of listeners in now over 100 countries on all continents, so it'll be exciting. Payam, let's start in the usual way. Could you give us sort of the, let's say, elevator pitch on Capella, please? Yeah, sure. We are a remote sensing company. Uh, what that means for those in, in, the, in your um, audience who might not know is we uh, we look at Earth from space, and we have sensors on our satellites that are pretty unique. Uh, we have seven satellites as of as of today. That number is going to change mm-hmm. uh, in the near future. And these satellites, uh, the sensors that we have on them are synthetic aperture radar sensors, or SAR in short. And SAR has some unique capabilities. Uh, it can penetrate the clouds, um, and it can do imaging in all lighting conditions. So we can do imaging daytime, nighttime, but we could also do imaging using our SAW sensor, um, no matter what the weather conditions are. We can see through the clouds, we can see um, through a tundra, you know, rainy season, fog, smoke, Mm -hmm. haze. And that really gives us an ability to monitor our planet from space in all conditions, reliably um, and effectively all the time. 
that's in short what we do. Obviously, there are use cases for it what we can get into, but mm -hmm. you know, we are a remote sensing company that has essentially built an end-to-end -end solution from the satellites all the way to sensors and the data data platform um, to be able to do this. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how did you wake up one day and decide, okay, I, I need to I need to put satellites in space I can see through clouds in that night? Um, well, so I am an aerospace engineer by training. I studied aerospace in my undergrad. I got my bachelor from University of Texas at Austin, Hook and mm -hmm. Horns. Um, <laughs> I then went to NASA Jet Propulsion Lab, and I worked there for a couple of years with a focus on small satellites. Mm -hmm. And so over there, I was doing... Uh, I was a project manager and a system engineer and in the formulation the formulation department where missions essentially get started and uh, get conceptualized. A scientist comes in and says, I really want to do this. And, and then the engineers are trying to design a mission around the needs of a cu customer at the time being a, a scientist. I left NASA JPL and I, and I came to Stanford to get a graduate degree. And at the time, frankly, I actually wanted to get out of the aerospace industry because I okay. thought it was moving really, really slow and it was highly bureaucratic. And all my friends who had joined software companies, things were moving so fast. They were already done five launches of different products. And that seemed just really attractive. Um, when I got to Stanford, one of the things that happened in, in the world that got everyone but but by by a surprise was there was there was a massive uh Boeing 777 that crashed and went missing it was it was a Malaysian flight oh yeah mm -hmm. 2014 if you remember yeah MH370 or something MH370 correct yeah. and 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 you know what was what was just really confusing to me uh, not knowing much about you know how these things work and you know um what do we do when a plane crashes was literally CNN and Fox News and you know every single outlet was talking about it every single day for a very long time. All the countries, US and, and others, had deployed lots of assets in the area to go find this plane. Mm -hmm. And we couldn't find anything about this plane. And, and that was just really confusing. And, and so I started asking um, the question of what is it that we do to monitor our planet from space. And, you know, this is back in 2014. Uh, companies like Planet and Skybox, who are doing optical imaging mm -hmm. from space, had already put up satellites in space or, or, or they're about to. And I, I found out so much about what we're doing and, and also so much about what we're not doing. And one thing that really jumped out was uh, was synthetic aperture radar or SAR. Um, and and it, just, it just appeared that all the other sensors, primarily optical, have come a very long way since the first time there was an optical satellite that was put up in space. But SAR has just been stuck in the past. Um, and, and, and not only that, SAR has some unique advantages that optical just doesn't. And, and so the ability to be able to see through clouds and at nighttime will give you a very reliable monitoring capability from space. Mm -hmm. And so as I started pulling that thread, what I found out was if you could have a constellation of SAR satellites that gives you an ability to monitor anywhere in the world, anywhere on this planet that we have reliably every hour of every day and every night, no matter what the weather conditions are. So you can essentially do it all the time. That would be a game changer for not only governments, uh, but also a lot of the commercial um, commercial um, companies. And no one has done this. No one has been able to get this done 
for lots of different reasons. And so that was that was the inception inception point for Capella, where we started the company six years ago with the mission to to change that paradigm and bring in transparency in 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 and essentially reliability to monitoring our planet from space. Okay, so, I mean you're right. I'd almost forgotten about MH370 because there's a quite a few years ago, but it is kind of concerning if one thinks about it, right? Because I mean, this happened to be a civilian plane and it's obviously, um, you know, tragedy, but it could have also been a hostile and hostile aircraft of a strategic competitor. So was there really no government capability around to track this? Well, I, I appreciate that SAR satellites right now are, you know, different new space element. You're going for commercial use cases. We are talking about, we, we will talk about, but was there no government SAR capacity, even if it was ridiculously expensive and archaic and <laughs> something like that? Well, this is, I mean, this is the crazy part, which is our own government, U.S. government, does not have enough SAR capability to be able to monitor, you know, forget about a plane going missing, critical hotspots around the world that they need to monitor all the time. They're not able to do so because they don't have enough SAR satellites and therefore they have these massive gaps in their coverage. And, you know, and that's the U.S. government who's spending, who's spending the most in terms of uh, the, the space budgets that they might have. And so there is a, there's a real gap. Now I gotta, I gotta also just put a caveat here, which is, you know, having a constellation of SAR satellites is not really the best capability to to find missing planes. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are other sensors that are much more effective. Uh, you know, there's ADSB and and others. Uh, but really, you know, something going missing and us not being able to immediately capture images of that area, uh, you know, essentially minutes after we know something has happened, is is what really piqued my my curiosity. And um, and we don't have we don't have that we, even to this day. You know, we've launched satellites. We're going to have to launch more satellites to get there. But even today, in 2022, uh, we don't have sufficient coverage our, of our planet um, practically um, in near real time for us to to immediately have eyes in the sky to see a change that might be very important. And that's just to me, that's crazy. Yeah, that, that, that does seem like something that should be fixed. I mean, maybe just sort of put some sort of rough numbers around it. I mean, if you're looking at sort of a let's call it quote unquote interested area of the world where you, you would like to have that capacity, right? I mean, what is sort of a, how often does a satellite fly over that at the moment? What's the revisit rate there? A SAR satellite. Well, so SAR, so let's start with optical. So optical, yeah. it, it, it really depends on the area. If, if you're talking about the cloudy belt, right? Like, you know, anywhere between 10 degree to minus 10 degree latitude, mm -hmm. Optical just can't see any time. It doesn't matter because it's, sure. clou it's cloudy all the time. Um, it turns out 50% of Earth, by the way, on average is cloudy. And those clouds are obviously moving around. Mm -hmm. um, and so whenever it's cloudy, doesn't matter how many satellites you have. Um, and doesn't matter where those satellites are flying over. You can't see through. You can't see under the cloud. So that's fifty percent of Earth on average out of the question. Then you've got the you've got the nighttime issue, and that's also as we know half of you know about twelve hours. You don't get really great lighting, and so that's also out of the picture because optical satellites can't really do night imaging in a way that's that's useful. Um, you know, some would argue, well, we can do night imaging, but it's not useful. Sure, it's it's great, but it's not. It's just like if you take your phone into a dark room, you know, it's not going to be a good picture. It's just not going to look good. And and so so with optical satellites, you know, it doesn't matter how many you put up, you're always going to have that limitation. Right now, 
the best revisit that we can find um, is going to be in the in the you know three hour, two hour, three hour um, on average. Now there again, there are areas around the world that's better, like the polar regions. We get a lot of coverage because most of the satellites are put in a polar uh, orbit. These are orbits that go you know essentially above the pole every you know every ninety minutes, and so you know there, there's a lot of coverage around the poles, but there's there's not much coverage in areas that really matters in the mid inclinations, you know, in the call it 30 degree to 55 degree where majority of the population lives. Mm -hmm. It's best is maybe three hours, maybe two, three hours at most. Mm -hmm. And you, you mentioned you are, um, you have seven satellites right now. So what, what regions are you guys covering and what's your sort of like built up plan there, both in terms of geographic coverage and, and revisit rate? Right. So our, that's our, re, our revisit is on average about two, three hours mm -hmm. anywhere in the world. Again, on average, um, we're trying to intentionally focus in, in these hotspots, um, that happen to be in, in the, in sort of the, you know, somewhere between call it 35 till to 55 degree latitude. Um, because what we have found out is, you know, majority of action <laughs> sort of say happens in, you know, maybe 10 regions around the world at most adding satellites into mid inclination, um, gives us additional coverage in areas where there's more change happening. And so, you know, we've got seven satellites up, um, two of them are in mid inclination and five of them in are in polar. And our plan is to continue having, um, essentially, a, a, you know, half of our constellation in mid inclination orbits, and then half of our constellation in polar orbits, which allows us to, to balance the, the coverage over these hotspots versus, you know, coverage, um, you know, outside of these hotspots. Okay, when, when you're using the term hotspots, is that sort of like um, political hotspots or in, in what sense we're using that? Uh, there's, there's an overlap between the political hotspots as well as just, you know, places where um, it's really dense in terms of population. Okay. So, um, you know, in in general, um, you know, you've got Southeast Asia that's of that's of interest. You've got Middle East that's of interest. You've got you know Europe um, that's of interest. Um, you know, those are the key areas um, that you know there is just a lot of action going on, and um, and most people want to be monitoring these areas. And in fact, you know, I can probably list ten countries that most people want to be monitoring. And now those are mostly for government customers that have have a desire to monitor certain areas over and over and over again. But even mm -hmm. on the commercial side, you know, if you're working with an oil and gas company, you know, that has lots of critical infrastructure around the world, um, some of them are in, you know, in, in, in areas that no one else is interested to look at, but a lot of them also overlap with, with some of these other government use cases. And that actually creates a challenge in terms of conflicts and capacity mm. that's on these satellites, because You know, if everyone is trying to look at the same spot, that becomes really hard to deconflict those requests and, and and tasks that that people might have. Yeah, so that, that brings me actually to a question. So, in in terms of the usage of your satellites, is it is it pretty much basically always specific tasking for customers, or is it sort of like also you just go around and collect data? It goes into a database, and people buy it off the database as they need it. I would say eighty percent of What we do is all based on someone driving the tasking and someone telling us where they want to look. We don't just look everywhere. In mm -hmm. fact, SAR satellites, just because of the, the nature of how they work, 
you know, they're really power hungry. Yeah. So you have on any of the SAR satellites, even the billion dollar, you know, school bus size government SAR satellites, they can't do continuous imaging. Mm -hmm. And so you have to pick and choose how you're going to use that capacity that you have on the satellite. You know, um, depending on your satellite, you have somewhere between, you know, one or two minutes of the 90 minutes all the way to maybe 15, 20 minutes of the 90 minutes available for imaging. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, we have we have a lot more capacity than our competition as an example. So we, we per satellite per orbit. So we, we get to choose, we, we get to be able to put more tasking on every satellite on every orbit, uh, but you still have to pick and choose which our customers are driving for every, essentially every day we can change this and shuffle, you know, what gets tasked, but then we have excess capacity, which we then, uh, you know, do some background missions to be able to build an archive over areas. Again, that we, we think there is value over time. If you build, you know, an extensive archive for it. So, you know, you have to be, you have to be very picky on how you end up using the the capacity that you have on your satellites. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to remember my EO lessons from the International Space University, but wasn't there something like that, SAR, it has like a, compared to optical, it has a, it has a smaller swath, right? The width that you can observe. I, I guess that's what you're talking about, right? That you have to be more specific. But what do you want to You know, at? that's, that's a different, so, so the swath is essentially the size of the image, yeah. right? The width of the image as you capture it from space. Um, that gets pretty complicated pretty quickly because on SAR, you can have different modes. In fact, you can have a white swath that is really, really wide in expensive resolution. So, you know, you can have a 10 meter, 20 meter resolution image that is hundred kilometer in swath okay. or in the width, which is much, much larger than, you know, typical optical satellites. Um, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is if you go to the physics of it, optical satellites are, these are passive sensors. Yep. They're just, mm-hmm. just sitting there for the light to get into the lens sure. um, for you to, to be able to make the image. And so that doesn't require that much power to sure. run that satellite because you're just mostly the sensor is passive on the other hand sar is a is an active sensor and yeah. so every time every single time that we capture an image we have to turn on our radar payload which takes a tremendous amount of power i mean we're talking about kilowatts of power this oh, is wow. not okay so it's not it's not like your 50 50 watt satellite okay <laughs> no no this is you know every time every time you turn on this radar kilowatts of power that you're consuming uh, from your batteries that your solar panels have filled up, you know, because of the difference in your power generation from the solar panel and then the power consumption, that that's just so large that you can't have as big of a solar panel to be able to, to cover the, the power generation equally. So you, 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 most satellite, most star satellites, in fact, if not all, are storing the power in batteries. And every time they're doing imaging, they're using the battery for the imaging as opposed to directly from the solar panels. And so every orbit is 90 minutes. And depending on how much battery you have and you know how, how much power your payload consumes, you can only do a fraction of that 90 minutes in imaging, in imaging mode. Whereas optical, uh, you're essentially continuously looking down nadir and you're always, we're just imaging constantly. Now, you know, that's also not true for some optical satellites, but for most optical satellites, you can essentially continuously do imaging. Whereas for SAR, you have 10 minutes of the 90 minutes, so you have to pick and choose. Okay. Which I assume that um, that must translate into a much higher price per... I, I assume the pricing is also something like per... Um, 
how do you price? Is it sort of per image? Is it per area? Is it how does the customer pay? Yeah, so we we have different business models. There is the per image or you know per tasking. Mm -hmm. There's the background missions, um, and you know there there are different levers here on on pricing. You usually put a price on what's what the customers value, right? That's just and uh, with SAR uh, latency and how quickly you can not only capture but also deliver and be able to guarantee that. And so having a service level um, on how long it takes from the time that you capture to the time that you deliver, that's really where the value is for 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 a lot of the customers. And so we have different tiering systems. So you know we can get you an image, and if you don't care exactly when you're going to get that image, um, that image is going to be far cheaper than if you want to make sure that you get the image on some hours after it's collected. You want to guarantee it. You want to make sure that we, you know, you're at the top of the priority list for us. So there are lots of different, I would say, uh, bells and whistles on how you end mm -hmm. up getting the image that defines what the pricing is. Traditionally, SAR imagery has been much more expensive than optical. Part of it has been because of the capacity constraints that you have on the satellite. So you have to, you know, you have to monetize your business and you have only, you know, 10 minutes of the 90 minutes. And so it's it's a much more expensive product because you have less of it available and you still need to, you know, build satellites and put them up and, and whatnot. That's part of it. The other part of it is, you know, it just hasn't been flooded in the market by seven different providers. And so, you know, it's a bit of a supply demand um, at work there. And, but, you know, generally speaking, you want to always price your product based on value. Sure. And, and so, you know, what is the value that the customer is able to capture and then you price it accordingly? Sure, sure. Let's talk a little bit about um, those use cases. So, I mean, one obviously is the government use case. And, you know, I guess we've, we've all sort of, I guess, sadly, um, gotten used to the fact that uh, ever since the Ukraine war started, it seems like every other news story has like, you know, satellite image in there. Um, so what I assume that is the key government use case is basically defense, national security, intelligence, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I, I'll just, I'll just be super upfront and transparent. And I've, I've, I've been transparent for the last many years on, on this specific question. You know, when I started the company, uh, the idea was we're going to go purely after commercial applications. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's why I started the company. In fact, I didn't know much about the government market around SAR. You know, two years into it, what I realized was commercial is so immature um, when it comes to remote sensing, um, it's immature even in the optical market, and they've been at it for a very mm -hmm. long time. Um, and it's and it's far less mature when it comes to SAR market because SAR is just really complicated to to play with. Now it's a very rich data set, so once you figure out how to deal with it, there's a lot of value to be able to capture. But um, but traditionally. Because SAR hasn't been around and there hasn't been companies like Capella providing this commercially, there's, you know, there's there's a lot of education and training required to get the commercial customers up to speed. And commercial customers, they don't want to just get a SAR image. They want to get, you know, some final product. Insight. Like whether insight. You know, they want to report that you know, tells them exactly what they're after. Um, and they don't want the SAR image. And so on the other hand, though, governments have have been using SAR for a long time. They're mm -hmm. very familiar with SAR. Uh, they can consume imagery directly. You don't need to build anything on top of the imagery yeah. for them to consume it. You just need to be able to deliver the imagery at the right formats, the right time, you know, with the right setup 
guarantees because they're, you know, again, they're really big on making sure that they get that SAR image when and if they need it. And they have existential problems and, um, and, and money for them um, is less of an issue, right? If you have a problem and you have a solution for it, you know, they're willing to spend the money to solve the problem they have because these are, these are existential massive mm-hmm. problems. You know, solving them is priceless. I mean, it's just like if we can monitor, if we can monitor a launch site, you know, North Korea, and we can do this better than anyone else. We can do it at nighttime. We can mm-hmm. do it at daytime. We can do it through smoke and fog and 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 clouds. If we can fill those gaps for the governments, um, you know, it's like how they would, you know, what? How much? How much? What, what's the price tag for that? Right. Whereas when you go into the commercial side of the house. Maybe you're, you're you're dealing with people that are that are highly focused on their bottom line, um, and and they really really care about optimization and cost, and and they already have a bunch of tools that they've been using, and you need to be able to fit fit your product within their workflow. And by the way, you know they can't consume the data; they got to you know it it just gets really complicated really really quickly. And so we focus mostly on the government applications as a first start. You know, that's not our that's not the that's not the end goal. That is that is the first start, and and we're we've decided to go after commercial applications. You know by you know being very selective, only going after a few that we either very very much so believe in, or we have a partner um, who's really good at you know that last mile delivery mm-hmm. of insight. So that's a, you know that's a slightly different approach than some some other companies have taken, but that's worked for us so far. Yeah, sure. And, and it's like you alluded to, Eve. I mean, even in optical, the government business is still a very large part. And and we're also recording this actually on a day when uh, the US Space Force uh, announced the, uh, the creation of an intelligence unit. So I think that that demand is, is only increasing. But let's talk a little bit about the um, the commercial side. So what are some some example use cases, how people use SAR data in for commercial applications, well, you know, one one of the one of the superpowers of SAR is um, its ability to detect change at, at a at a very high um, accuracy. And so, uh, you know, you can capture two SAR images, and if they're captured at the with the right geometry, um, which is critical, um, and what that means is the you know you capture the first image, um, and then the second image getting captured either from the same satellite or another satellite needs to be captured from practically the exact same geometry as the first image was captured, which, so, so you have to control the satellite. You have to be able to maintain, uh, you know, it, it, an orbital tube um, to be able to fly in exactly where the last one, if you can do that and you put two images on top of each other, two of the star images, then you're able to detect uh, millimeter changes between those two images in in the in the z dimension, you know, so the surface deformations, mm-hmm. you're able to to measure the change in millimeter accuracy. Mm-hmm. And so, some of the more exciting applications on the commercial side using SAR is to monitor to monitor critical infrastructures, bridges, buildings, um, and be able to from space see if there is any deformation forming in these um, in these structures. Um, you know, people are doing this today to measure how much the Millennial Tower, there's a tower here in San Francisco that's mm. tilting, you know, a couple of millimeters a year, right? It's, you know, it's now, it's, I think it's now more, um, must be a couple centimeter, but people are using SAR from space to measure this. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I'm excited about is, 
if we could monitor all the bridges um, in the world, you know, you start with a state and you go to a country and you're able to monitor all the bridges, all the critical infrastructures that we have, monitor them at a cadence, maybe it's every quarter, um, and be able to now proactively, uh, you know, provide reports to um, authorities and others who care about those infrastructures on the health of these critical infrastructures, you're going to save a lot of money by not, you know, sort of sending trucks and people and, you know, mm -hmm. inspection. But more importantly, you'll be able to get ahead of a potential uh, disaster mm -hmm. or a fallout of some of these, you know, aging infrastructure that we have. Um, so that's a really big one that I'm personally excited about. Um, you know, there are other applications around tracking changes, whether it's um, looking at deforestation, whether it's monitoring yeah. easements, whether it's looking at pipelines and other other inf infrastructure. There's there are applications in insurance because you know when when a disaster happens, assessing the damage from from that disaster becomes critical, and the timeliness of that becomes critical not only to the first responders but also to uh, to insurance companies who have to have to go in and and assess the situation um, and and help financially. Um, so there's been some work on the insurance. Um, there's the typical use case around finance, you know, being able mm. to track commodities from production all the way to consumption and provide that information. Agriculture has has shown quite a bit of uh, potential. Now, agriculture, you know, we do expand SAR, which is a very specific frequency we use mm -hmm. uh, in our center. Other frequencies, you're able to measure moisture um, pretty accurately mm -hmm. and and from there be able to uh you know imply something about the the health of the crops and and be able to optimize your irrigation uh for for any crops that you might have so they're 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 very interesting applications in agriculture in the works um that I'm excited about so th I would say those are the those are the the big ones uh but none of them none of them have gotten there yet I think they're still at the at the early phases of piloting and demoing, uh, but any of those standalone are are very, very exciting. Mm -hmm. so, since I'm assuming you're sort of looking at um, Capella imagery every day, is is there any sort of examples you remember of, whether it's both on the government or on the, on the commercial side, any any stuff that you thought was really cool is like, wow, I wouldn't have imagined we, we can detect this, but we detected this, and this is really, really amazing? Well, I, I, I think... It has been, yes, there's been many. I mean, the, one of the coolest was the first one that we captured ever. And, mm. you know, just getting that first light from your satellite after you've worked on it with your team for five plus years uh, was just, you know, and it looked really good. The fact, so it was, um, you know, that was super exciting. I think that the, the, the most recent one and the most relevant one uh, was, uh, was over Ukraine. So we, we've been... We've been monitoring Ukraine uh, for a long time, and we've been monitoring it even before the Russian invasion. And some of our imagery was used to essentially predict that Russians are about to invade. Mm. And this was all in the open, in the open um, domain, and so nothing classified. You know, this is commercial imagery, um, and so you know, essentially, in, in in one of our imagery, you could see you could see the Russian tanks line up 
right outside the border and, mm. and are starting to actually move. And that was before the invasion was declared. Anyone anyone had called that this was about to happen. And our imagery was used to to essentially verify and, and imply that, which was, you know, which which just shows the power of um of remote sensing and being mm-hmm. able to use space. Um and in fact Ukraine is cloudy 75, 80% of the time this time of mm-hmm. the year. And so we were sort of the only game in town in terms of being able to, you know, have this persistent monitoring of the situation as it was as it was evolving. So that was that was pretty unique. The other ones that come to mind are uh, volcanoes. Um, and so when, there was a couple eruptions in the last year, and we were able to capture imagery through the volcano, through the smoke, and be able to actually see, mm-hmm. you know, the the point of eruption, which we had shared with some scientists, and and that was also really really cool to see. That was uh, was at uh, Tonga, right, last year, I believe. Yeah, the there was a couple. I think that was one, and there was another one. I'm forgetting the name at the moment. Yeah, yeah. On the, I mean, it's interesting on the, on on the military side, right? Um, I guess the other aspect is, I mean, it's, it's really clear how strategic um, that capability is. You know, having said that, you guys have seven satellites. Okay, there are some others. Um, I guess it sounds also from a resilience point of view, we should have many more star satellites up there, right? Because obviously people do have anti-satellite weapons and the like. And by the way, it's also cybersecurity jamming. Is there any other sort of aspects where um, that touches you guys? The sort of like hostile behavior of strategic competitors? Yeah, I mean, we... we uh you know, we take cybersecurity pretty seriously. And so it's not a, you know, what, you know, the last, last few months, um, there's been a lot of concerns around, um, you know, cyber as well as physical security, um, given that, you know, our products is, is being used, um, you know, in this conflict, but frankly, you know, at this point, if you're a commercial company, even if you're not doing government work, you got, you got to have a really mm. solid cyber Agreed. as well as physical security. And so if you're, if you're following the, the foundational work that you need to do, you know, those are, those are all already pretty, pretty, pretty darn good. And so, you know, we've been, we've been doing that for five years. Um, so we feel, we feel pretty good about it in terms of resiliency. You know, I think this is actually a critical point because the conflicts of the future are moving away from these massive juicy targets um, that we, we, we have, we spend, you know, billions of dollars on, because they can be taken out, you know, pretty effectively. And it's moving away from that to having a much more resilient architecture where you're not dependent on any single node. You know, mm-hmm. you have you have enough of these nodes that even if one or two or 10% or 20% of them are 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 taken out, uh, not only you have additional capability already um, in theater, but you have additional ones reserved on the ground to be able to launch really quickly and be able to replace the ones that have been taken out for mm-hmm. whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And you just practically can't do this, you know, your satellites or your ships or, you know, whatever assets, you know, drones, you know, these are really expensive, really hard to manufacture. And you only have a few of them. You just, that just doesn't work. Yeah. And and so, you know, with, with companies like Capella, where, you know, our star satellites are relatively low cost, uh, they're easy to manufacture. Mm-hmm. They're small. Uh, we're able to provide a resilient, a level of resiliency that has really, frankly, never, never been possible before. Um, and so that becomes that becomes really, really critical. I think in the in the in the twenty first century. Uh, how how small is small? I forgot to ask that before. We are uh, we're one hundred twenty kilograms. Um, okay, so, so like a small sad. 
Yeah, it's a small sat. It's not a cube sat. Um, you know, this sure. is a small satellite. It's size of a you know mini dorm room fridge. But once once it goes to the space, it transforms itself into a pretty pretty large structure and a, and a satellite. So we have lots of deployable structures that come out mm. um, after we launch in space. Yeah, but the point, the point being, in terms of resilience, I, I guess it's uh, there's a number of even like very responsive vehicles that can you know take up your satellites basically. Um, you mean launch launch our yeah, satellites? Yeah, launch vehicles. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, we we are compatible with every single rocket that's out there. My, mine is. I mean, there's a couple that are, you know, they don't have enough capacity on their on their payload. You know, very small rockets, but anything above that, we you know we 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 can launch on anything. And by the way, I also forgot to ask, are you guys, um, it sounds like, you know, it's um, because of the technology involved, it's a relatively special type of satellite. So are you guys doing this all in-house or is any part of the satellite um, uh, like off the shelf, like an off the shelf bus or not? You know, we, we do have some off the shelf components, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, so we, we are actually three companies in one, if you, if you want to think about it that mm -hmm. way, we have our, we have, company one is we're satellite manufacturing. We, we design, integrate, test our satellites, mm -hmm. all of it. There are little components that we buy from others, but, you know, we built the entire payload system. We build our power system. We build our communication system. And, you know, we've bought a couple of things from others, but we've, this is, it's our design. It's our satellite. We built it, we've integrated, we've tested it. That's company one, like satellite manufacturing. Mm -hmm. Then company two is, you know, we launched these on rockets that others have developed, like SpaceX and mm -hmm. Rocket Lab. Mm -hmm. And then once they're launched, we have to operate them. And sure. so now we're now we're a satellite operations company. And you know, that's that alone is pretty complicated because you have sure. to automate all these and create all the infrastructure on the ground. And that's company two. And company three is now that we have built the satellites, launched the satellites, operate the satellites. Now we're a data company. Sure. Um, we bring the data now, now like the, the business of, you know, processing the data and understanding how customers want to ingest it and how do we deliver. Now that's like a standalone complicated thing to do. And that's the third part. And the fourth part that we are just dipping our toes a little bit. We, we like to partner um, for this, for this last mile is, you know, being able to actually build software and analytics on top of the data, which is now your, you know, yeah. your sort of analytics domain. And that's a that's a complete separate challenge than the first three. Um, so yeah, lots of different things happening in one company. And then that last part is, I guess, very important for the commercial customers. And let's talk about it in a minute. But I just want to come back. So there's uh, three to four different companies. I mean, I guess at the moment it sounds like it's always. Uh, quote unquote bundled, and I can also see for historical reasons that at the time you guys started, there wasn't that much of a choice yet, right? In like terms of unbundling that. I mean, nowadays, right, you there's much more choice in terms of hosting on other people, even though you know SARS, I guess, more difficult. But is it always bundled? Or have you guys? I mean, let's say there was some nation state, and again, this is a strategic capability, right? Maybe there's some nation state, like no strategic competitor, but somebody who's you know friendly, but they still. Hey, um, we want to operate this ourselves because you know we just feel more comfortable. Like, would you ever just sell the satellite, or is it always the, the bundled package? No, we we do have business models where you know we uh, we operate it on on their behalf, but they essentially own own the satellite or own the capacity mm. of the satellite. There are also models where the operation also gets transferred, and a customer will operate the satellite themselves. Now, that one is a very complex one for lots of different reasons, one of them being just 
the export laws in U.S. Sure. Uh, you know, being you know, exporting a satellite is is really really difficult. And the second piece is training the customer on how to operate the satellite. Is you know, essentially, you have to productize you know some internal tools that you've built to operate the constellation and be able to package that and provide it to them. So there are some customers that really want a variety, a, a flavor of these and. You know, we have flexibility to work around those with those customers. And so in some cases, it's possible to do things like that. Okay. But let's come back to the, the commercial customers because this is, this is fascinating and we sort of touched upon it a little bit already. But I guess I have at least two questions about this. One is sort of the sales process, right? Because the government product, I mean, I'm probably oversimplifying it, but it's kind of like probably almost sells itself just because it's so value added, like you said, for the national security um, use cases. Now, as you pointed out, for commercial customers, you have to convince them of the value. So what, what does that sale process look like? Is that sort of, for example, is it in-house? Are you guys using resellers or partners? Like, I guess you're not doing agriculture, but I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter which uh, industry vertical it is. Like, I, I guess in most industry verticals, they're sort of like, you know, specialized consulting companies or data companies are you partnering with those are you going direct or what is the sale the sales approach you know my 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 head of sales who's focused on government sales would, mm. would disagree with you on how easy it is to sell the government. <laughs> um, it, it's not easy to sell the governments i mean it's it takes years um i think that one of the main challenges on the government side is they don't move fast right you, you're always programming fair enough your budget two years in advance And so the, the sales cycles are extremely long, but once you get there, then, you know, you know that the customer has already spent resources and you're going to be there and you're going to grow with them on the commercial side. They can move really, really fast, but the challenge remains on, you know, you, you've got to be able to deliver something to them. That's beyond way beyond just an image. Um, and it turns out, you know, I think this is, this is one of the main challenges That the industry as a whole is going through is that you know not a single data source is going to solve um, you know big problems for any of these customers, and mm. so you need SAR, you need optical, and you need other things that are not even from space. You know you need some sure. data from their own sensors that no one has access to. It's proprietary to that customer. You need you know you need some terrestrial sensors. You need IoT. You need maybe other things. Mm -hmm. And combining all of this for a very specific problem set that a customer has and being able to solve that, not only from a technical standpoint, it's challenging, but putting that aside, even from just coordinating, you know, all these different data providers to work nicely together. And, you know, this is a big topic. We can expand on this, mm. why that's complicated. Getting everyone together to work nice together such that by the time you add all of these different data sets, you still have a product that is a reasonable product in terms of cost and price for everyone involved is extremely challenging. I don't think the industry has gotten there yet. And then, you know, on top of that, you add all the product management required to get as close to the customer at the very end use case to be able to actually come up with what the problem is and what the solution is going to be. It gets really complicated really, really quickly. And I think the let me know if this is interesting to talk about, but the, you know, the, 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 the challenge of, uh, you know, finding a way where all the data providers from space are going to be able to work together nicely to come up with this product has not been solved, frankly. And that's, you know, that's, I think that's a challenge for the industry until we figure that out. It's going to be extremely difficult to 
to move, you know, move forward with any of these commercial sectors in a, in a big way. You know, I, I think it's a, I think it's a super interesting topic. Um, you know, I, you actually just gave me an idea because we won't have the time to obviously flesh this out and do it any sort of justice today, right? I think maybe I'll do an episode where I invite somebody like you plus a couple of other guys from EO, maybe even somebody who does this terrestrially, maybe somebody from a big, you know, um, terrestrial data company, just to have sort of a roundtable how we think we can and, and how we can and how we should approach this. But I agree. I think what you're talking about basically is, I mean, there's just too much friction in the system, right? I mean, it, it should be, there should be a lot like open source. It should be, somebody should be able to just kind of, you know, get the data from the various sources, uh, sources, put it together, fuse it. Ideally, there's sort of like automatic assistance in the fusing, um, you know, and, and and basically run analyses on top of that, right? But um, uh, well, let me, I, I, yeah, if I may just say it in in one minute, I think the system is not in equilibrium. And what I mean right. by that, is you've got these data providers, and Capella is one of them, right? You've got the Capellas of the world, you know, the the planets of the world, the black skies of the world, yeah. the skies of the world, where we are we have focused on building satellites and therefore the unique data. Um, and our business is really, you know, it requires a lot of capital to get to where it is today. And we want to be able to return that capital back to the investors. And so what we've promised the investors is this massive return on the investment they've put into the company. And so you have to be able to capture as much of the value as possible. Um, every single data provider that I know of wants to move into analytics and downstream. And, um, and and that's just the way they believe they're going to be able to grow their revenue substantially outside of the government markets. Now, on the on the other side, you've got these, you know, you've got these analytics shops, the platform plays that don't have any data of themselves from mm-hmm. their own mm-hmm. satellites. They're, they're not a satellite company, and and they are doing analytics. And the data providers often think that these analytics companies are in competition with them. Mm-hmm. And the data companies, sorry, the analytic companies are 100% dependent on the data from the data providers. Sure. And the data providers don't want to undercut their pricing that they're selling to governments because that's where the premium customers are today. And for them to be able to get that data to these analytics companies at the price that these analytic companies can actually, you know, bring data from a Capella and a Hawkeye and a Planet and a, and a and a black sky and a max are that price has to be so low. This analytics company to be able to grab seven different data stores, add them together, and then be able to build a product that they can sell to commercial customers still at a really low price. That math doesn't add up. So what happens is the analytics companies give up on using high resolution data because mm. they can't figure out the business model. The data providers already think that they're going to at some point compete with the analytics companies, and so there's already friction in that relationship. The analytics companies give up on the high resolution. They move into low resolution, free data. Mm-hmm. And the free data and the low resolution either is not recent enough or the resolution is so low that you actually can't really get stuff out of it. And so then the product that they get out is not interesting to the commercial providers. Some of them go bankrupt, which we've now seen happen. And so mm-hmm. now you've got... And then by the way, to add on top of this, all the data providers think that their data is the most important one and they want to be... They want to be the one that's like getting everyone's data together. So it's like a really unstable dynamic between the data providers and then the, va- the downstream um, partners. Mm. So I guess, where do you think, I mean, how do you think this all plays out? And this is kind of, I guess, sort of a question on your vision on the industry. And I'm not just talking SaaS, sort of the larger EO sector, right? I mean, wh- where do you see this playing out? Are we going to have more horizontal um, consolidation? Are we going to have more vertical integration? Where is this all going? 
consolidation is going to happen. It's just, mm. a, it's just a matter of time. Um, and I think you're going to have consolidation both horizontally and vertically. You know, you're going to have a lot of these analytics companies that are just going to go out of business because, um, because, you know, because of this dynamic that I just explained, yeah. um, you're going to have some of the data companies go out of business because, you know, they either focused too much on commercial and commercial didn't exist and they didn't get to the revenue. Um, they were just not able to grow the revenue fast. And so they had to consolidate with someone else that could. And so you're going to have consolidation from both ends. I think, you know, I think if you, I think if you hit the reset button in this industry and there's absolutely zero company out there and you hit the reset button and you're starting from a fresh, clean canvas, the right way of doing this would be to have clusters of sensors. Um, and the clusters of sensors are, you know, we can discuss the buy versus build of, is this mm -hmm. all one company operating each of those clusters or each of these companies are contributing their sensor into the cluster. I would argue the, the latter sounds really nice, um, but it's practically impossible to get those companies to work together like that. Mm -hmm. But if you had a, if you had a constellation built out of clusters of sensors, one, you know, a couple SAR in each of the clusters, you have a couple SAR, you have an optical, mm -hmm. you have RF, mm -hmm. you know, you have hyperspectral. And those clusters are actually systematically built and designed to work together. Mm -hmm. um, so from the get-go, the data is already coming in, um, you know, uh, already fused. And now, now you have an analytics that that either is run separately or the same operator of the cluster is also running the analytics. I think that's the equilibrium that we're going to get to. And I, you know, how we get there is going to be crazy because, you know, SPACs happen and all of a sudden mm. there's an exploration <laughs> of who's going to get money and who's sure. not and who's bankrupt. And, and so I think we're a couple more cycles away from such an eventuality, but I think that's where we're heading as an industry. And and how does, um how do you see Capella sort of like what's your vision for the medium term in that, in that scenario? Well, I think in that cluster, um, SAR is going to be, uh, SAR is going to be absolutely critical. Um, you know, SAR, you know, given enough time, and this is, I truly believe in this, given enough time, SAR is going to be the foundational data um, that is going to be used the most. And everything else is going to be to train models on SAR data. So optical, as an example, is fantastic to look at visually um, because we're familiar with how optical images look like. But it's got all these issues with reliability and you can't really use it all the time. And, you know, mm -hmm. maybe you get a shot that's cloud, cloudy or not. But it's great for, for training models um, because you can, you can outsource the training. Everyone can look at an optical image and you can say, this is a truck and this is a ship. Sure, sure. Uh, you can't do that easily with SAR. So if you combine yeah. the optical and SAR and you train your SAR imagery based on the optical co-collection, uh, perfect. Now you can transfer all those labels and all those models onto your SAR image. And now you're able to, to have the best collector in the world um, and the most reliable collector in the world already trained. And if you're, and if you're at a point where all you got to do is, you know, cla identify, classify, extract, and generate change reports on, you know, things that you're looking at, which is where we're ultimately going to go. Then, then you're going to use SAR because it's going to be the reliable one, and you're going to use other sensors to provide support. So SAR is critical, and you know what we built at Capella is you know the best SAR satellite in its class in terms of resolution, quality, and other things. And so you know we're going to be a critical piece of this puzzle, no matter how we, no matter how this thing shakes out. And and so that's 
you know, we're, we have a pretty unique position. You you mentioned Spectra briefly, and um, you don't have that much time left. I did want to ask you a couple of questions on the financing side. So the first one is, um, I think you guys started in 2016, you said. Um, this was obviously, space was less focused on by a lot of investors than it is right now. So how was it like sort of trying to raise financing in 2016 for a SAR company? 2016, oh my God. Um, I almost want to say, you know, I haven't reflected on this. So this is a little, you know, this might not, this might not be the most thoughtful response, but I almost want to say it was easier to raise in 2016 and 17 because, you know, there were not that many data points. Um, and I think now with, the SPACs, you know, the the the, the space companies that SPAC then are now publicly traded. Mm. There is there is sort of a there's a clear data point that all investors, whether they know space or not, are going to be able to use to judge new companies that want to get formed. And so people are going to you people are going to look at the black sky trading uh, number and yep. and where where they're at. They're going to look at their multiples based on the revenue they have. They're going to look at their performance. And they're going to judge you whether you like it or not based on those public comps. The public mm -hmm. comps did not exist a year before. Everything mm -hmm. was private. Mm -hmm. And so you as an entrepreneur, you as a new company with a new cool you know, um, technology, you didn't have to build the case around why you were, you were going to have to be valued differently than you know, where, where Black Sky or, or other space companies are being valued publicly. Mm -hmm. And that... That I think to some extent made the conversation easier. Now, if this was the, you know, if this was a case where all the space companies publicly were trading really, really high, more than everyone yeah, expected, yeah. your job would be easier. Um, but it's not. So I think it's a little more complicated now than it was back in 2016. 2016, the pitch was, you know, look, there's been successful optical companies in private markets. We are we're better than that because yeah, X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. um, and now you now you've got that public public comp component added to the mix, which makes things a little more complicated. Yeah, no, that's that's fair enough. And in, in my day job as a VC, I think I've recently said more than once to people pitching to me um, that like, well, your publicly quoted peer has this market cap and you are asking a pre-money that's three times as much. <laughs> How does it go together? And I mean, they, you know, it's like the market cap is 250 million and then they have 150 million in bank and cash. It's like, it makes no sense, but... You know, you, you can't expect to raise money at higher valuation than that in an in a non-liquid market. Yeah, uh, with higher risk, it's just it's just a little crazy. But, uh, you mentioned SPAC a few times, uh, and again, this could be a very long discussion by itself. But obviously, you during the SPAC, well, let's let's be nice and call it the SPAC boom, uh, sort of late 2020 and uh, first half of 2021. I mean, you guys were already a very prominent space company. Um, you know, if people were aware, you have a certain sort of funding need. Uh, SPAC was certainly, you, we were a very legitimate SPAC target. I think let's put it this way. Um, you guys obviously decided not to SPAC. Um, if, if you want to briefly talk about it, what, what was the thought process there? Well, it, look, I think a lot of people use SPAC to raise money. That, that's what they use mm -hmm. SPAC to, to raise money as opposed to using SPAC to go public. Like the end goal, the intention wasn't to go public. Mm -hmm. The intention was oh shit, we can now raise capital. Sure. And if that was your intention and you were not ready to go public, it was actually a really bad idea um, to, to do that. You know, for us, we, you know, when the SPAC boom happened in January of 21, we had just, we have just announced our commercial operation for our first satellite. Um, and so, you know, using the SPAC to go public, 
you know, was probably not the right timing for, for a company like, like us at, at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, those are things that you have to consider because, you know, going public is not, you know, it's not, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's not, it's not easy. I mean, you gotta, sure. you gotta, you gotta, you're not going to be judged every quarter, every day, frankly. And if you're not ready for it, it could be crushing. And, and we've seen, we've seen that exact thing happen. It's been, it's just been crushing some companies. Yeah. I think some of the other founders are realizing that right now, just all sorts of implications, like your employer, your morale with the stock price down 80% and all of that. But, but yeah, it's, again, it's a topic, it's a separate topic by itself. Um, we're sort of um, coming towards the end here. Unfortunately, we could go on for hours, I guess. So I just wanted to ask you um, sort of some typical closing questions. One, um, just for the benefit of our listeners, are you guys, are you guys hiring right now? We are hiring like crazy. I mean, we have so many open positions. Anyone listening, I would I would encourage them to go on our website. I think we have more than 30 open positions uh, and we keep adding to it. Um, or reach out to me, uh, either on LinkedIn or Twitter. Yeah, we're hiring a lot. Terrific. Yeah, we'll put the link to uh, Capella's job board in the in the show notes for everybody. And then the, the last two questions I always ask is, so one, if you, the first one is, if you weren't doing Capella, but you're obviously um, fascinated by space in general, I think, what else would you be doing right now in space? In space in particular? Yeah, in, in the space yeah. sector. Um, you know, that's 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 a good that's a good question. Uh it's hard for me to answer that. Just I've been super focused on Kapala, but sure. There are there are many exciting things happening. I think I think one area that I'm really excited about is manufacturing in space. You know, whether it's in whether it's a it's low earth orbit or in you know in, in other areas, but being able to manufacture things in space and take take advantage of you know microgravity mm-hmm. um, is 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 really exciting to me. And is that in space to bring back to Earth or in space to use in space or both? It, b- both areas, I think you know, in space and bring back to Earth is is going to become practical from a cost standpoint fairly fairly soon. And then mm-hmm. in space to actually be used in space. There's some neat applications around that as well. Um, so both of them are pretty exciting, I think. Yeah. Actually, as, as a venture fund, we're super excited about in-space manufacturing. So totally agree on that. And and the traditional last question is um, science fiction, Priam. Do you like science fiction? And if so, what are some of your favorite works? And it could be book, TV, movie, anything. Uh, you know, I, I'm not a big science fiction person um i have yet to watch matrix and star wars and uh and any of those which which is uh i always get a lot of uh, uh a lot of people are just confused including my friends why i've not watched those but th- there there is i'm a big carl sagan fan and, mm-hmm. and he there's there's one book that he has that's 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 you know you could call it science fiction and it's contact that one i've, sure. I've enjoyed but i'm i'm not a big i'm not a big sci-fi person Okay, so let, let me then, okay, I'll modify the, the question um, because one thing that sprang to my mind because we're talking about SAR and, you know, one of the, um, the the really big advantages that you can see through cloud cover. I mean, do you ever think in the future some point in time there could be a Capella satellite helping us to to peek through um, the cloud cover at Venus? Absolutely. I mean, we need SAR satellites around, um, you know, around um, other planets. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, I think, you know, if you want to map, if you want to have a very precise map a three dimensional map, you know, you, you, you want to have SAR satellites and other planets as well. And by the way, NASA has launched, you know, radar sensors to other planets. So this is not a new thing, mm-hmm. um, but having a constellation to be able to have, have that capability under planets, I think is, is going to be vital. So absolutely. 
Terrific. Well, that I think that's a great note to to end on. So we're looking forward to that. Payam, thanks so much for coming on. Best of luck um, with Capella and its uh, future plans. And maybe we'll talk again in uh, you know in a little while. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Look forward to our next conversation. And that's a wrap for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. Once more, if you enjoyed this, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. You can support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself, if you have an interesting space story to tell, or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. See you for the next episode.